This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Ringgit and Sense on BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're tuned in to Ringgit and Sense, the show all about personal finance. And I'm Sim Wee Boon. Today in the studio with me is Matthew Stewart-Box, the Chief Investment Officer of the robo-advisor firm, MyTheo. And he's here today to talk to us about global diversification, why it's no longer just an option, but in fact, a necessity. Good morning and welcome to the show, Matthew. Morning, thanks very much. Let's start off with the team today about the importance of diversifying globally, right? Maybe you can go through the basics of it with our listeners first. What makes a global and diverse portfolio? Why is it important, especially in the current economic backdrop that we live in. If you think about it, like traditionally, investors, they, they tend to have a lot of investments in their home market. So, you know, Malaysian investors tend to invest in Malaysia, but US investors tend to invest in the US, UK investors tend to invest in the UK. And I mean, there's good reason for that. You know, people like to invest in things that they know. Uh, they might think that investing locally is maybe less risky. Uh, they may have a better chance of higher returns maybe less um, foreign exchange risk, that kind of thing. Um, so it does make a bit of sense in that point of view. Um, and especially if you're investing in like individual stocks, then maybe you do have an edge if you're investing in the country that you know. But if you're talking about a more balanced portfolio, if you're talking about asset allocation, then really being overweight your home country doesn't make any sense at all. If you think about it, um, companies nowadays they're all exposed to global risk. Whether you invest in Malaysia, the UK, the US, you're still getting global risk. Companies have exposure globally. They have global supply chains, global commodity markets. So by investing in your local country, you're still getting global risk, but your returns are very narrow. You're just getting the returns of that country. And so the idea of investing globally, diversification means... You still have the same kind of global risk, but now you can get a more diverse set of return streams. Uh, and I think that's really the driver why people are looking at uh, investing more globally now. But I think one of the wariness that comes from investors uh, when it comes to global investing right, is the response time. You know, you react to the market conditions, right? So by investing locally, um, I might be able to react to certain developments faster, right? You know, I might be mm. here to absorb the information faster. Whereas if I have a global portfolio, responding to developments, adjusting my portfolio might not be as easy, right? Yes. I think that's a very fair point. If you're trying to get uh, an edge by information, then you want to be as fast as you can. Uh, and as close to the market as you can. Um, I would argue that uh, trying to get an edge based on information is an extremely hard thing to do. Um, maybe, you know, if you're talking about investing in individual stocks, yeah, that makes sense. You might have some good idea about an individual stock or an individual company. Yeah, I can understand that. But if you're trying to get an information advantage on U.S. equities versus Australian equities, I, I would argue that's a very, very difficult thing to do. And, and I think there's a time aspect to why you should have a diverse global portfolio, right? Mm. I mean, maybe you can talk a bit more about the time aspects of it, the, long, the short and the long-term viewpoint. Yeah, sure. I mean, in, in, in one respect, you know, um, 
global equity returns are quite stable over the long, longer horizon. Obviously, there's a lot of variation year by year. But if you look at, say, like a 20-year horizon or a 30-year horizon, global equities give you, what, maybe 8 perhaps 8.5% um, annual returns. Um, and so getting exposure to that is a very good way of building your assets uh, in the long term. Uh, in the shorter term, you know, there's a lot of variation market by market, um, and there's a lot of variation between asset classes as well. Um, and so trying to limit some of that shorter term variation by investing not just in different equity markets globally, but also in bond markets, commodity markets, other non-standard markets, is a good way of kind of lowering some of that certainly short term uh, volatility, I think. Okay, but when we talk about volatility, right, that like there will be volatility in the short term. In the long run, you will still see growth, right? Mm. Which is, you know, whether you have a diverse portfolio globally or in terms of the different kind of asset classes, right? Mm. The general theme is that in the long run, you will see growth, right? But how do you or how can investors approach this when sometimes the short-term volatility can be quite, <laughs> I want to say traumatic, maybe maybe to some. And that's where investing is always a psychological game. Even as diverse as I can be, the current market conditions, there's really no safe havens now, right? So how <laughs> yeah. how can an investor look at their portfolio and, and stomach the, the these short-term volatilities? How can they yeah. guard themselves against these swings, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think that's a very good point. I mean, a couple of points here. Obviously, uh, no matter how diversified you are, you never get rid of all risk. You always have an element of this market exposure. Uh, and right now, as you said, over the last, what, like nine months, ten months, market exposure has been very painful. Yeah, I opened the S&P, I opened the NASDAQ, even our local Malaysian markets, you know, red, I'm seeing more red than green. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And, you know, and you're right, you know, it seems like there's no safe haven. It's not just equities, you know, bonds are yeah. down, even things like gold has had a very rough ride, things like that. So I can understand that. But you're exactly right that this is a psychological element. Um, and the, the key from what I'm, uh, for, for the way I approach it is, um, there are things that you can control and things that you can't control as an investor. And you cannot control market beta as an investor. By investing, you are taking that risk. And, you know, the idea that you could wait until that risk goes away or maybe uh, try and predict that risk is something that's very difficult to do. If you think about it, if that risk is gone, then you shouldn't really be expecting any returns. Uh, there's no risk. Very minimal ones. Yeah, yeah there's, no, there's no real returns without, without some element of risk. And so you can't control, by investing, you can't control that market better. But think about what you can control. Well, you can control how much you invest and you can control when you invest. Um, and I would argue that the way to deal with this kind of volatility is to make a plan and stick with it in terms of um, when you invest. Uh, most people, you know, they don't have a large amount of cash just sitting around waiting to invest. And so this idea of like a, a regular amount of investing, you know, a fixed, say, like a fixed dollar amount or a fixed percentage of your income. Dollar cost averaging. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's a very good way of kind of taking control back. Um, that's something you can control how much you invest, when you invest. You have absolute control over that. So make a plan decide in advance how much you're going to invest, regardless of what's going on in the market, and stick with that plan. Uh, that gives you um, control over the things that you can control. 
Um, the, the point about getting worried about seeing your portfolio is absolutely right. And my personal approach to that is don't look at your portfolio every day. I mean, it's not going to help you. It's not going to help. You're just going to feel, oh, no, it's down another 2%, another 5%, another 10%. Um, look at your portfolio maybe once a month, uh, maybe even, even less than that, uh, and focus on the things that you can control. Okay, so we can't avoid the red market. We can't avoid the volatility, right? But would you say having a globally diverse portfolio helps minimize the damage that it can do? Yes. Yeah, yeah absolutely, yes. Um, both in terms of like uh, equity diversification, uh, different countries, you know, most countries are down this year, but not, not every country. There are um, some emerging market countries that have done well. There's, there's some um, uh, commodity countries that have done well. And so diversification like that can help. Um, and then diversification across asset classes obviously um, can help. Uh, certainly there are some uh, commodities markets that have done relatively well this, well this year as well. We're going to take a short break for some messages. Don't go anywhere. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. Welcome back. You're tuned in to Ringgit and Sense. I'm Sim Wee Boon and today's topic is global diversification. No longer an option, but necessity. Joining me to discuss this is Matthew Stewart-Box. He's the Chief Investment Officer with the robo-advisor firm MyTheo. Earlier, we were going uh, through some points on global diversification, why it's important, how it helps you reduce your risk. And also, we were talking about the psychological aspects of staying invested despite seeing your portfolio going red every other day. I want to start on more, delve deeper into this psychological thing, right? Where at the end of the day, the thing of it is that it's a very human thing to do. You know, it's a very human emotional feeling to look at a, your portfolio and no matter what you tell yourself it's, it's hurting actually sometimes not even hurting from an aspect of losing money hurting from an aspect of losing opportunities because we were talking about dollar cost averaging where you decide a set amount every month you put in but then when you see sometimes the market swings and you feel like there's an opportunity to make it's hard to, it can be tempting to stray away from that path right so this is where more data-driven investment decisions are being made now through ETFs, you know, where they use algorithms and data to kind of like help you make better decisions. And you being from IT, I think you're the best person to talk about this, right? So how does using data then maybe help remove some of this psychological, more emotional uh, aspect when it comes to um, optimizing the portfolio? Yeah, sure. I, I think that's a very fair point. I mean, in many ways, you know, we are our own worst enemies when it comes to uh, investing. And one way of kind of getting better investment results is to kind of strip away some of that human bias, that human behavioral problems. Uh, and that's our, that's our approach very much. And as you said, you know, we use ETFs uh, and we use um, computer uh, algorithms to build the portfolios. Um, the value of the ETFs is they give you a very clean, simple, transparent exposure to pretty much any asset class you want in the world. You can invest in any equity market, any bond market, almost any commodity very quickly, very cheaply, and with a lot of liquidity through ETFs. And so we use those as the basic uh, building blocks of all of our portfolios. And as you said, those, those ETFs are all built um, to be passive investments. There, there's no human intervention in kind of what uh, securities are included in those ETFs. Um, and so that means they follow the, the particular market that they're based on. But generally, if you look at it, right, historically in the long term, right, active 
investments, active funds have generally outperformed passive funds, right? You know, and I guess that is also one of the, um, I wouldn't say pushback, but one of the kind of uh, uh, points that people use against ETFs or saying or use against the reliance of ETFs, right? Where at the end of the day, no matter how much data you have, an actively managed form of investments will still outperform the market. Not the market maybe, but still outperform in general, right? Doing things. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the truth is that uh, active investing on average does not beat uh, passive investing, especially when you take into account the kind of the post-fees performance. Um, obviously, active investing requires a lot of resources. It requires a, a highly paid fund manager, a lot of researchers, a lot of um, costs on the ground to, to manage them actively. And those are reflected in the fees that they take out of the funds. And so while some active investors can beat uh, the market before fees, when you take into account the, the fees, then uh, on average, they underperform. Of course, any, in any particular year, there will be managers who outperform. Um, the problem is it's very hard to predict which managers will outperform in the future. The fact that a manager has outperformed over the last two or three years does not predict whether they're going to outperform in the future. Maybe they were well suited to the market in the past, but current market conditions are different. Uh, there's no reason why an active manager that did well in the past is going to do well in the future. Um, and so my experience is that certainly for a long-run investor, certainly for an investor who's investing globally, um, a passive ETF-based approach is your best chance of capturing those returns. Do, do you think that you risk duplication of mm, efforts, yeah. you know, and, and again, you know, different assets, unless you're buying into, you know, say just one fund that doesn't, mm. like all, you know, if you even if you're doing it yourself, right, you know, these different classes, this different, there'll be different fees, different considerations, different laws. It's, it's truly complex, you know, so how do you, when is there too much diversification when actually at the end of the day, when you look at the the returns or the effort that went through returns, it's just not worth it. Uh, I mean, that's a very good point. And, and that, that, that kind of idea of uh, diversification, when you yes, look back, yeah. you, you were over diversified. I think there's a couple of things you can say about that. Um, one is after the fact, when you look back at your performance, um, you'll always be able to find parts of your portfolio that have underperformed. And so it's very natural to think, well, if I hadn't invested in these assets, I would have done better. Uh, that's true. But unless you can predict which assets are going to underperform in the future, then there's not much you can do about that. Um, but I think people do misunderstand diversification in that diversification is not the objective of investing. Nobody is aiming to, to – that, that's not the purpose of investing – so you're thinking about it as from uh, maybe perhaps the wrong standpoint. You start with what do you hope to achieve from your investment, uh, investing? What is your investment objective? Uh, and there's, there's various different objectives. You might be looking for long-term growth, long-term capital appreciation. Uh, some people might be looking for uh, protection against inflation. Uh, some people might be looking perhaps for like a, a stable income stream, something like that. Those are all perfectly valid objectives for investing. So you should start with being clear about what your objective is, then go and build the portfolio that's going to meet that objective with the least amount of risk. And that will naturally lead you to the right amount of diversification. You make, make a portfolio that has the best chance of meeting your, invest, your investment objectives with the least amount of risk, and then you'll naturally have the right level of diversification. Yeah, so you can't just 
diversify for diversification sake. sake. Absolutely, yeah, exactly absolutely. right. Yeah, yeah, you you have to have a goal in mind, and you're right. You know, I think when you talk to the would be investor, most of it, right? They just yeah, you know, um, I'll start with this. I'll just keep buying and keep buying and keep doing different things, and mm. and that's when you get um, you know, discouraged, right? Because when you look over at the friend over the shoulder who maybe is concentrated on one or two stocks or one or two asset classes versus mm. your very diverse portfolio, and you tend to get discouraged, right? So, you know, how does then one construct maybe a simple diversified portfolio? How would you advise someone or how would you view a kind of a good diversified portfolio? Mm, Sure. I mean, that's a very good question. And especially if you're not a particularly experienced investor, it's very hard to know, you know, what what should I I be investing in? What should my objectives be? so our, our approach at MyTheo is to ask the, the client some questions, some very simple questions in terms of, you know, their, their age, their investment horizon, uh, the degree of risk that they'd like to take. Uh, and based on that, we try and estimate their um, objectives uh, in terms of how much long-term capital growth do they need, how much inflation protection do they need, how much regular income do they need. And then based on that, we'll use um, computer algorithms to go and build portfolios that meet those objectives for them. And so for the long-term growth objective, naturally, they're going to be focused on uh, equity uh, ETFs. Uh, For inflation protection, they're going to be focused on uh, real assets, things like real estate or gold, commodities, that kind of thing. And for the kind of the stable income part, they're going to be focused on uh, bonds, corporate bonds, government bonds, high dividend stocks, that kind of thing. All of those things can be bought very easily, very cheaply through uh, ETFs. And then we'll run those portfolios, we'll maintain them, keep them up to date all the time uh, and make sure that the client's portfolio stays uh, at their target allocation. Okay, all right. So, but generally, is it risky just focusing and using ETFs to manage to maintain portfolios? Because, you know, I wouldn't, I, I would think that you know you need to stand expand more than just having being too re, being so reliant on something like ETFs, right? I mean, looking at year to date Vanguard Spider ETFs, that they are down almost twenty twenty percent. Mm. Yeah, I, I can I can understand that. Um, so uh, you know, most people would have this idea of you know perhaps a a core portfolio and some satellite elements to it, uh, and perhaps the core of your portfolio should probably be stuff that is relatively passive, uh, relatively low cost, relatively automated and easy to maintain. And I think ETFs are perhaps the best way of building that kind of portfolio. There are other ways, but that is probably the best way. Um, But you might want some kind of satellite elements to your portfolio that are more, perhaps more um, concentrated, maybe perhaps single sectors, single markets, things like that, where perhaps you do have an information edge, things like that. Um, a lot of investors use that kind of approach, a kind of a core and then a bunch of satellite elements to their portfolio. When it comes to ETFs, right, is the core advantage of ETFs generally the uh, less of the psychological aspects and also lower fees? Are those the two main advantages of ETFs or are there more advantages to ETFs? Yes, yeah. I, th- I think, you know, the the passive element of them, um, and so that's the, the, uh, the, the lower risk of them, the lower fees. Um, also, of course, they're um, extremely liquid. Um, and so you can come in and go out um, at any time. 
Uh, and so for um, an invest- a, a, a product like MyTheo, clients can put their money in at any time. They can take money out at any time. Um, there's no costs involved. There's no penalties or, or, or in, involved in kind of putting money in or taking out. Because ETFs are listed on the, U- on the US stock market, you can trade them instantaneously and there's almost uh, no cost involved. So uh, I think they're also a very good way of providing a very liquid uh, investment to retail investors. All right. And that's all the time we have for Ringgit and Sands. I've been speaking to Matthew Stewart-Box, the Chief Investment Officer of the robo-advisor firm MyTeo. Join us again next week for more discussions on personal finance. I'm Sim Wee Boon from The Morning Run. We have the 10 a.m. News Bulletin coming up next, followed by Enterprise BFM 89.9. Ringgit and Sands on BFM 89.9, the business station. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.